0: Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. In Asia-Pacific, some countries are more advanced in containing the outbreak and reopening their economies. But where will the pecking order lie in the aftermath of COVID-19? Which Asia-Pacific regions will property investors favor and which real estate sectors are likely to draw more investment? Joining me to discuss this from our Asia-Pacific team based in Beijing and Singapore are Neil Brooks, Head of Capital Markets, Emily Ralph, Capital Markets Director, and Nicholas Holt, Head of Research. So, Nicholas, how have you found life in Beijing, both during and after lockdown?
1: It's been a really interesting experience, obviously, being based in China during these last few months. Obviously, China, the epicentre where this coronavirus first appeared was obviously a lot of nervousness very early on, sort of January, February time. It's been interesting to see how well the Chinese actually have done in containing it after the initial outbreak in Wuhan, where I'm based in Beijing. In fact, we've never had a full lockdown. We've never actually been told to stay indoors. So apart from February when we worked from home, but we could still go out, there were still some shops and restaurants open, etc. It's actually not been too draconian. The Nightfront office reopened on the first of March, and we had a sort of 50% rule in for a few weeks, and now we're back at a hundred percent. It's been really sort of interesting at seeing it from this side of the world. You know, now we're at a point where things are really getting back, Ebby's out shopping and eating in restaurants, and the economy's really starting to go. The obvious big constraint being what's happening outside of China, because the China's still very dependent on the global economy. So very interesting times to have been here and to have witnessed all of this from the Chinese side.
0: Emily, how about yourself? How is life in Singapore going?
2: Singapore has been an interesting place to be as well. It was seen to have coped initially very well with containing the virus and was sort of earmarked as a country to look at in terms of how efficiently they managed to contain it. But it's been a country that is going through almost a second wave at the moment. It's not really spread throughout the community, but it's spread through construction worker dormitories. So at the moment, we're in our second month of lockdown. The government is looking to reopen the country on the 1st of June next week, but quite a slow and gradual reopening. So still, we're expecting to be working from home for another month or so. And borders as well are still locked down. So that's a really key thing for Singapore It's a real transit hub for Asia-Pacific, so everyone's keen to see when the international borders will start to open up.
0: And Neil, on the transaction side, where are you seeing property deals picking up the fastest in Asia-Pacific as countries emerge out of lockdown?
3: China was the quickest country to, to pick up in terms of transactions. There were a lot of deals that were under contract already. And what we've seen as the economies reopened, people are able to go and inspect properties and actually finally sign those deals. I think we're going to see more transactions also in South Korea, which is one of the other countries that has come out of the virus first. And thereafter, I think activities can be focused on the core countries in Asia Pacific, the larger economies that are going to be less impacted by the virus.
0: And Emily, what is your view on that? What are you seeing on the ground and which countries and cities do you think might emerge slightly better out of this?
2: It's interesting. I think that there were certain trends that were already emerging in Asia-Pacific investment trends that we were keeping an eye on that have been accelerated by the virus. So we were already seeing a sort of shift to core market by the end of 2019, 90% of transactions were happening in the six key markets in Asia and there was a real turn away from the secondary or emerging markets. That's something, as Neil mentions, that we really expect to happen even more so as people look for, for safe havens. In the first quarter of the year, we saw a big drop in transaction volumes in markets like Hong Kong and Singapore, that are quite heavily reliant on overseas capital. So transaction volumes in these markets are about 80% down. But these are kind of the core markets that we'll see investment come back into when we will see a cross-border capital able to transact when border lockdowns rise.
0: And do you think the virus will have a big impact on the sort of traditional markets and I suppose the ones that are traditionally the most active? So Knight Frank published some research based around Japan, South Korea and China, accounting for three quarters of Asia-Pacific commercial real estate volumes so far this year. Do you think those three regions are likely to remain fairly dominant?
2: Yeah, I think the reason they were quite dominant in the first quarter South Korea and Japan in particular is that the domestic investors in those markets were very active. So they weren't so heavily reliant on the overseas investors. China as well, we saw a lot of activity because investors in the Asia Pacific region from Singapore, Korea, and also from US are looking to take a wind of opportunity for deals in China, while there's less investors able to pick up the competition. I think we'll see the sectors of interest really remaining to be the core offices. Logistics sector really is very popular, backed by the rise of e-commerce. Similarly, data centers. We're also seeing a trend of increased interest in living sectors such as multifamily. We've seen Blackstone invest into a big multifamily portfolio in Japan. And really, it's these living sectors which are backed by demographic fundamentals, which are seen as quite defensive asset classes. And that's a really key thing for investors at the moment, looking for defensive sectors that they think can withstand this downturn.
0: And on the residential side, Neil, do you see multifamily or built to rent playing a much larger role in the aftermath of the virus, with people perhaps more likely to rent than buy homes? It's
3: difficult to get a handle on what's going to happen in that sector. It's one of the largest sectors in the US and it's expanded quite quickly in the UK. We haven't really seen it expand quickly in Europe. In Asia, it hasn't expanded at the rate at which we thought it would, mainly due to tax concessions that exist for commercial properties not being extended onto that bill to rent residential properties. I think the virus also might have an impact in terms of people wanting to live in close proximity or co-living. That's certainly been impacted in the short term, don't know whether it'll be a long term thing. We're also seeing quite a big drop in migration in a lot of the big countries in Asia Pacific that were driven by large net migration over the last 10 years or so, particularly Australia. So that's going to have a negative impact over the next two years, definitely. I don't think it'll have a long term negative impact. So I think long term, it's definitely a sector that will grow, but just not at the rate which everyone is expecting.
0: Nicholas, what about Hong Kong? What are you seeing in the market over there? Clearly, sentiment was hit by mass protests already. So how are you seeing things holding up?
1: Hong Kong's faced quite a few headwinds. So it's had the US-China trade, it had the protests last year, it's had COVID. All of these things have sort of battered the market to some extent. Now, all of that said, you know, to a certain extent, Hong Kong's been quite resilient it's still a very important market across the Asia-Pacific region. Indeed, it's still a very important global financial hub. I think more recent announcements could just add a little bit more uncertainty into the market and have some real estate investors perhaps look a little bit more closely and consider what the potential implications could be. But again, longer term, Hong Kong still has a very liquid and attractive market for investors, both from Asia and from outside of Asia.
0: And turning to outward investment, Neil, how are you seeing COVID-19 impacting Asian outbound investment around the world?
3: It's impacted Asian outbound a lot. I think we've seen about 80% of active requirements put on hold out of Asia. There's very much a wait-and-see attitude from the big capital exporters, so Hong Kong, Singapore, Korea, Japan, very much investors expecting price falls. And we haven't seen price falls in the direct market yet. In the gateway cities in the US or in Europe, the listed sector has fallen quite substantially. So the REITs are down between 35 and 25% across those areas, which would suggest that the direct real estate market will also follow. So I think everyone's just waiting to see what's going to happen. There are pockets of activity. The Korean investors in particular, still active bidding on assets in UK and Europe, and they're driven by tend to be long term secure income streams that they lock in. So they're less exposed to the issues in the occupier market that are impacting most investors that buy CBD assets. I think we will see investment volumes start to rise again outbound, but it's going to take three, four months until people get a handle on the market and watch for any second wave hitting the European markets in particular.
0: And is it clear, Neil, yet who might follow the Koreans out the door in terms of outbound investment?
3: Yeah, the Singaporean funds are definitely still very acquisitive. The listed funds out of Singapore and Hong Kong, particularly the office funds, haven't fallen nearly as much in value as their counterparts in the UK and Europe. So they're still relatively aggressive and I think they'll probably be first back into the market. Also, private investors, again, out of Singapore, Hong Kong, and potentially Taiwan, are definitely looking to get money out of those countries and diversify into the gateway cities, particularly London. But they are keeping an eye on pricing and don't feel it's quite the right time to buy yet. There's two different views. One is that this is a window of opportunity to get into some good assets at a slight discount, and it might well close up once the virus recedes in hopefully two, three months Or it could be a longer term downturn and we're going to see values decrease more and and more buying opportunities in, say, 9 to 12 months.
0: Emily, you mentioned sectors that are likely to become more active. From an outbound perspective, which areas do you think Hong Kong investors are likely to focus on? For instance, are London offices now less
2: attractive than they used to be? I think we'll see Hong Kong investors particularly tend to focus on the central London office market. I don't foresee that changing. Last year, investors in Hong Kong were starting to look into alternative sectors, such as living, multifamily, student accommodation. But I expect they will turn to what they see as their sort of core investments, which is sort of flagship offices. I think we'll see them looking more closely at the income streams, making sure they're resilient and of high quality. But we have already seen in the first quarter in London activity from private buyers out of Hong Kong, who perhaps aren't so reliant on debt, which is more difficult to obtain at the moment.
0: And which other markets are worth highlighting? Would you say that Australia, given it's slightly less affected by the virus, is their market doing perhaps better than others in Asia-Pacific?
2: Yeah, Australia is always a very popular market with Asia-Pacific buyers, particularly from Singapore and increasingly over the last couple of years from Hong Kong privates as well. We are starting to see some investment activity after a very quiet first quarter from Australia. We're mainly seeing this in the sale and lease pack arena in, in offices and industrial from corporations who are looking to release some capital from typically very well-located assets in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, CBD. So these are really attractive sort of opportunities for overseas capital who are looking for these long income streams to often very strong covenants. So I think that's where we'll start to see the activity actually quite quickly in the next two and three months
0: and neil emily mentioned investment from the likes of blackstone into japan how is lower investment levels from europe and other parts of the world how is that impacting the asian domestic real estate market
3: it's impacting the markets that are very exposed to cross-border buyers mainly. So that's Australia, Singapore and Hong Kong. Japan and South Korea have held up relatively well. The U.S. is the biggest investor in Asia, has been for the last five years or so. And that money is still ready to deploy in Asia a lot of it. They're typically the private equity funds who are really seeing this as an opportunity to get into the market if we see the stress that they're expecting. And I think there's no doubt we'll see distress in some sectors, primarily retail and hospitality. And then it might spread into other areas and particularly in the emerging markets. I think we're going to see distress in various different corporate sectors there that the US private equity groups will pounce on, allow them to deploy capital. They've got about 34 billion US dollars of dry powder to deploy in Asia Pacific as at the end of 2019. So there's a good backstop there, but they want to see value. And I think we will also see European funds that don't need to raise debt in Asia start to buy in the core cities of Japan, Sydney, Melbourne, Singapore. So they're buying all equity. And I think they just want to get a handle on the occupier markets before coming in. I think the cap rates typically will give them the return they need. They just want to make sure that the income element is still underwritten. So I think we will see activity, certainly, but it's going to take another two, three months for that to come through.
0: Have you seen any American investors buy assets without viewing, or is that not really picking up as a major trend?
3: Yeah, not being able to inspect the assets is certainly an issue. We are seeing a lot more joint ventures being formed. So equity providers in, say, Singapore or Hong Kong, primarily U.S. private equity groups, they're tying up with investment managers on the ground in different markets that they have relationships with already most of the time. So they're using them as boots on the ground. And those investment managers might co-invest in a particular vehicle or fund, putting in skin in the game of 5 to 10%, which is material for them not taking controlling stake in the fund. So we're going to see a lot more of those joint ventures going forward, I think. And we're also seeing some other elements like drone viewings, which are definitely not mainstream yet, but we have heard we used on some industrial acquisitions in China over the last few months. So that technology could be driving less requirement to visit, but it's going to be more joint ventures going forward for the next two, three years, I think.
0: Nicholas, how about yourself? What other investment themes do you think will be important for the rest of the year?
1: I think Neil and Emily have touched upon quite a few of them. I think one overarching thing that obviously we're reading a lot about in the paper is I suppose the anti-globalization movement that we're hearing you know obviously coming out of the US this sort of economic nationalism the idea of either reshoring businesses manufacturing especially or even looking at sort of supply chain resilience where by due to political or economic or any potential future pandemic or something like that People are looking at the potential disruptions of supply chains in the future and therefore are looking at moving potentially manufacturing, but also potentially service industry outsourcing. So if we think about Asia, and we have office outsourcing, business process outsourcing in places like Manila and in places like Bengaluru in India. And it'd be interesting just to see how the political scenario plays out over the coming months to see if any of that sort of starts to move In China, we've already heard of the Japanese saying they want to move certain manufacturers back to Japan. And obviously, there was a movement of some low-cost manufacturing out of China anyway because of just the cost of labor and land here. So that's probably one of the things to keep an eye on because increasingly, if we are going into sort of an anti-globalization phase or a movement away from the globalization that we've seen, that's obviously something that I think investors will have to consider very carefully when looking at the markets around the world.
0: If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information.